Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. On this episode, I'll be talking with Egyptologist David Roll about his latest book, Legendary Kings, The Real Bible Unearthed. I've had the opportunity to interview Dr. Roll on two other occasions, and I'll provide links to both of those conversations in the show notes. But the thing that fascinates me about his story is the fact that after discovering a number of anomalies associated with the conventional Egyptian timeline, David Roll decided to create an alternative chronology, which in his view better explains all the data. Unfortunately, however, his proposals were simply too radical for the academic world, and so rather than giving him a hearing, he began to be viewed as a kind of heretic. In my thinking, this helps to illustrate the problem of belief systems and paradigms, which in some cases can end up doing our thinking for us. You see, when a new fact is presented to us which seems to challenge our deeply held beliefs, often our instinctive reaction is to get defensive and to dismiss this new information without giving it much thought. But this kind of posture is a perfect recipe for remaining trapped in prisons of our own making. And this is why we need to be skeptical, even of our own views, constantly checking them against the facts of the real world and comparing them with other possible explanations. So before I air my conversation with David Roll, I thought it might be a good idea to tell you his story. And to do this, I decided to weave together numerous clips and soundbites from a variety of documentaries, interviews, and programs in which he's appeared over the past few decades. It's a story about a man with questions, questions that many of his colleagues prefer to ignore because of previous ideological commitments. 1973 saw the publication of Professor Kenneth Kitchen's invaluable resource volume, The Third Intermediate Period in Egypt which brought together all the known chronological data of the 21st to 25th dynasties into a single reference work. This exposed a number of potential weaknesses, which were seized upon by a new generation of scholars and led to the development of the new chronology movement. 
If you come down in this corner, yep. you can see how this has been cut to be a 90 degree angle like this. Right. So this stone was notched to be able to fit it comfortably into this, just like this. So that's, I think, is proof positive so that this, this is a pre-existing structure. Absolutely. Okay. But this is the 22nd dynasty tomb, and this is the 21st dynasty tomb. Therefore, the 21st dynasty king must have died after the 22nd dynasty king. Exactly. The new chronology hypothesis was first brought to the world's attention through the publication of David Rolls' international bestseller, A Test of Time. The culmination of 20 years' research and drawing upon his intimate knowledge of a landscape he had explored many times, David's book exposed a number of questionable assumptions underlying the established chronological framework of the ancient world. Although not everyone was happy. Professor Kenneth Kitchen, the leading authority in the complex and mysterious world of Egyptian dating, did not react favorably, making it clear in lectures and papers that he was vigorously opposed to any radical revision of the ancient timeline. So this business of chronology is a very serious matter, and you can't just throw away what's been done and twist monuments or alter things. It seems to me that there is a sort of hierarchy in, in this sort of world, Egyptology or scholarship, and if you come and question the precepts, the, the things that have already been decided yonks ago, then you're challenging, you're being sensational. All I simply want to do is get one or two answers to one or two problems that I've observed or raised during the course of my research. And we're in a situation here where I'm not allowed to do that because it's sensational to do so. It's, it's rocking the boat. Time and again one says, sorry, this, this, this and this don't add up. It doesn't seem to be possible. All of us want to try and do better if we can, but novelty is never the judge of truth. The history of revised chronology extends back even to the 18th century, when Sir Isaac Newton published his little-known excursus, The Chronology of the Ancient Kingdoms Amended. At the end of the 19th century, Cecil Tor challenged the authenticity of the Greek Dark Age, which had recently been established as a result of Petrie's discovery of Mycenaean pottery at Tel el Amarna in Middle Egypt. Then, in 1914, the Norwegian Egyptologist, Professor Jens Lieplein, questioned whether the 21st and 22nd dynasties may not have been contemporary rather than sequential. In the 1950s, the unpredictable Emanuel Velikovsky suggested an extreme 500-year revision of Egyptian chronology in his worldwide bestseller, Ages in Chaos. So revisionism of the ancient timeline is not a new thing, and the new chronology has a long pedigree. I was working on a new dating system for Egyptian history. Only later did I realize that my work has important implications for biblical history. The more research I did, the more I realized that the accepted dates for the pharaohs have to be wrong. This has distorted our entire view of ancient history and has left the Israelites without an archaeological footprint in the ancient world. In the last century, scholars were brought up on the Bible, the most influential book of Western civilization. The new breed of archaeologists went out to the Holy Land in Egypt, armed with a trowel in one hand and the Bible in the other, trying to prove links between the Bible and the civilizations of the ancient Near East. The trouble is, it's these links which have confused our interpretation of biblical archaeology. I think David makes a case for challenging received wisdom 
about how we're viewing these other areas chronologically. And I think that's very, very important. He's raised the question, and it has successfully refuted, I think, conventional wisdom. Though the Bible implies that Joseph's people spent over two centuries here in the land of Goshen, no archaeological evidence has ever been found for them. So the Israelite sojourn in the land of the pharaohs has been written off as myth. But if the new chronology is right, archaeologists may have been looking for them in the right place, but in the wrong time. It's here that the Austrian archaeological team has been making some amazing discoveries. They can't go down more than a few feet before they hit the sort of... What they've uncovered is a city, the ancient lost city of Avaris. Amazingly, its population was of Semitic origin, people from Palestine. Could these people be the Israelites? If you take the archaeological evidence from Avaris and compare it to the Bible's account of the Israelites in Egypt, it all seems to fit rather well. First we have a foreign population entering the eastern delta and settling down here. Then there's a terrible plague and they seem to abandon the city. Now this all could be coincidence, but I don't think so. In front of us is a new Professor Manfred Bita is the director of the dig. But what you see here now... It's a very controversial theory, uh, a radical theory. For my understanding, the time gap of three centuries is a very big one, and I see several problems arising. However, this theory will stimulate discussion and surely perhaps even bring about some kind of cuts in the uh, chronology. One particular discovery made by the Austrian excavators could be the most amazing find of all they came across the remains of a palace and a tomb, both built in the Egyptian style, but not for an Egyptian. The occupant, the founder of the city, seems to have been a foreigner who rose to high rank during the reign of Amenemhat III. Once, in this spot here, there was a magnificent tomb. I think this is the tomb of Joseph, and that Joseph once lived in that palace. But we can still see fragments of the original likeness. A yellow skin, denoting a foreigner, not an Egyptian. Flame-red hair. We can see on the shoulder the throw stick, the insignia of office of this man. And then a multicoloured coat around his shoulders and down his back. Is this Joseph? It has ramifications for our entire view of ancient world before about 664 BC. And that would seriously make us reconsider and rethink the way we've approached all of these problems in the past. It has major ramifications for how we look at the development of ancient history. I wouldn't champion it just because it holds out hope of proving the Bible. I don't think that's what archaeology is for. It can illuminate the background to the Bible and it may occasionally give evidence of particular events, but not very often. Um, I think one of the benefits of David's theory, one of the things it has going for it, is that it provides, in some cases, a better background for a biblical event than the conventional scheme does. You have to realize that history isn't the past. The past is what happened. 
History is basically our best guess at how we interpret what happened, and we don't always get it right. And over the centuries, of course, people have written history books about this particular era, and if you read one from the 19th century, it's a totally different type of history book. So we have different ways of writing history. The past never changes, but our interpretation does. The NC timeline is now being taught in Bible colleges as an alternative to the conventional scheme, which has failed to provide archaeological support for the Old Testament stories, leaving many experts to recast the biblical narrative as a work of fiction. Bible teachers now have a new temporal framework with convincing archaeological support for the biblical narratives, and see this as a new dawn in Old Testament studies. Biblical archaeology is back in fashion. We have had a problem with relating the Bible to archaeology, and the trend has been to disassociate oneself from the Bible. What this new theory is trying to do is saying, well, we can still retain a lot of what the Bible says and fit it into the archaeology. There are answers to it without holding to necessarily the traditional approach to it. When I first came across the revised chronology, I was a skeptic, a very strong skeptic and had to work things through for myself. Uh, but once I read things and worked things through and it made such logical sense and the evidence seemed to be so strong, uh, I've adopted that into all of my classes. I've been teaching now for 27 years and probably 17 or 18 of those have included re requiring my students to learn the revised chronology right next to the standard chronology. I want them exposed to the differences between the chronologies and I want them to see how the revised chronology solves a lot of the quote-unquote problems. First of all, I think many of the Americans need to be made aware of the problem that exists. They need to know that uh, there are scholars out there that are basically saying the Bible is a myth. The Bible never happened. They're nice stories, but that's all they are. And a lot of your evangelical communities aren't aware of those problems. And I think once they become aware of the problem, I think they're going to be extremely excited to see the solution to the problem. The problem was made in our original dating, not with the Bible itself. If you think about how we construct our ancient history, we use a framework, a backbone, which is chronology, dates. And if you think about how we actually date the ancient world before the birth of Christ, that's a very difficult process. How did the ancients date something? They didn't know Christ was going to get born in so many hundred years from their point in time. So what they did was they used regnal dates. That means they said it was the fifth year of Ramesses II when he fought the famous Battle of Kadesh. Now, we as historians have to work out what the BC date was for the fifth year of Ramesses II, and that is not an easy process. So when you read in textbooks that that particular date was whatever it was, um, 1273-74, that's actually guesswork. It's based on our best interpretation of the evidence. It's not a real date as such. There are 
quite a few academics who are in positions now who were my colleagues at university and, and they tell me privately they think it's fascinating and it's worthy of, of further research but they don't teach it in their classes they're not allowed to because if they do it threatens their positions because there's still a whole raft of these other scholars who are there at universities senior scholars who look at them and if they start to diverge from accepted wisdom of course they will get themselves into trouble my nemesis, uh, Professor Kenneth Kitchen, who originally said that I was 98% rubbish, uh, he's now admitted in a debate that we had in University of Reading a few years back that the neutronology or the David Roll Exodus state is as powerful and as strong as his own view about the Ramesses Exodus state. So there are two options. You've got the David Roll option on the early date. You've got the late Bronze Age options, not just me. Uh, there are two powerful sets of options which do not give credence to the mythologist people. So there's somebody who was absolutely dismissive of it, saying, well, you know, there's some strength to this. In his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Thomas Kuhn observed that in science, novelty emerges only with difficulty, manifested by resistance. What a man sees, he says, depends both upon what he looks at and also upon what his previous experience has taught him to see. Its assimilation requires the reconstruction of prior theory and reevaluation of prior fact, an intrinsically revolutionary process that is seldom completed in a single man and never overnight. Almost always the men who achieve the fundamental invention of a new paradigm have been either very young or very new to the field whose paradigm they change. Max Planck, surveying his own career, sadly remarked that, quote, a new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. Of course, what Thomas Kuhn and Max Planck were describing there is the human condition. Why are human beings so divided on so many important issues? And why is it so difficult to discuss conflicting points of view? Why do we stubbornly cling to our own deeply held convictions, whether political, religious, academic, or otherwise, without taking the time to really consider other perspectives? Why are we so influenced by the consensus of our peers or those in positions of authority more than by the facts themselves? Well, stay tuned as I'll be exploring these questions and more in a variety of different ways on future episodes. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of this program, I recently had the opportunity to talk with David Roll about his latest book, Legendary Kings, The Real Bible Unearthed. And here's part one of that conversation. Dr. David Roll, thanks for being my guest for this podcast. It's lovely to be back, I must say. So in the opening of your new book, you start off by saying that the conventional chronology lies at the heart of all the problems of biblical historicity, and that this is why an archaeologist like Israel Finkelstein can write a book titled The Bible Unearthed, in which he basically concludes that there simply aren't any Bible stories to unearth. Talk about that. 
Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, my life has been spent trying to work out the chronology of the ancient world. I mean, since I was quite a young lad, seven years old when I first started to write hieroglyphs. But uh, I got really into it in the 1970s when Kenneth Kitchen, the great professor from Liverpool University, put together an amazing book called The Third Intermediate Period in Egypt. And I realized there was issues there with the chronology of Egypt that had been established over the previous century. Now, Israel Finkelstein, of course, works within what we call the conventional dating scheme, which was established by Ken Kitchen and, and other scholars. And so when it comes to the issues of the Bible, linking the Bible with Egypt, there was a definite mismatch. And that's what really Finkelstein has been writing about most of his career. The fact that there is no real evidence for the biblical narratives in the conventional timeline when it refers back to Egypt and Egypt's relationship to the archaeology of the Holy Land, because they're interconnected. And so, yeah, people like Finkelstein and others have said, well, you know, the story is a foundation myth. It's not really based on real evidence because they've been shackled by this conventional chronology which the Egyptologists have given to them. So if the Egyptian chronology uh, is wrong, then your synchronisms between the archaeology of the Holy Land and the biblical narrative are going to be out of kilter. They're not going to be lined up correctly. And that's really where I ended up, was looking at biblical archaeology and trying to work out how it could match with what we call the historical evidence, the Egyptian evidence, and including the biblical narrative, which I regard as a historical work. You also point out that your chronology ends up solving other historical problems outside the world of the Bible. Can you give us an example or two of that? Well, there's a lot of them, actually. But the, the big one, I suppose, is the Dark Age of Greece, mm. which was created by uh, archaeologists in Egypt finding Mycenaean pottery, mm. which would basically be the heroic age of Agamemnon and the Trojan War, in an Amarna context, which is Akhenaten, the, the predecessor of Tutankhamun, and pushing the heroic age of the Trojan War back 300 years uh, from where the Greeks themselves thought it was. I mean, the original classical Greeks never thought of a Dark Age. And uh, and Homer was writing about, um, according to this conventional dating scheme, was writing about a time 300 years after his own life. Sorry, before his own lifetime. So you have, you have these conflicts. And this is created all by the Egyptologists giving these, these nations, these civilizations, a timeline based on the Egyptian timeline. All right. So now one of the things I found fascinating about your latest book has to do with the number of inscriptions that have been discovered throughout the Sinai Peninsula. Uh -huh. And the argument you make is that when you treat these proto-Sinaitic inscriptions as a form of ancient Hebrew, they end up not only making sense, but also bear strong resemblance to characters and events recorded in the Hebrew Bible. So when do people typically date all the various proto-Sinaitic inscriptions? Well, this is a really complex question. It's a linguistic question. It's also an epigraphic question mm -hmm. and a historical question. What we found is that there are inscriptions in the Sinai Peninsula, uh, specifically at the site called Serebet el Khadim. That's the main site. It's one of the places where they mine turquoise in Sinai. And there's a temple of Hathor there. And in the mines, they found inscriptions outside and inside the mound, which looked like hieroglyphs. I mean, Egyptologists were Petri when he first found these. They said, well, these are Egyptian hieroglyphs, but we can't read them. They don't read as Egyptian at all. So it took Gardner, the great linguist, to come along and, and realize that this actually was a West Semitic language that was being written using symbols that had been copied, if you like, from Egyptian hieroglyphs, but representing the letters of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, etc. So, for instance, the, the Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, is the, the sign for a bull's head. 
Um, and that comes into alpha in the Greek world and to our letter A. You, if you think of our letter A, it's actually an inverted head of a bull, our capital letter A. You know, it, it rotates to become a bull's head. And you could say you can do that with all of them. Mayim, the water symbol. Mm-hmm. They're all hieroglyphs, but they don't represent hieroglyphic words. They represent Hebrew words. Once that's realized, and let's let's call them actually West Semitic at this point, Northwest Semitic. Once it's realized it's Northwest Semitic, you can read them. The problem, of course, is that uh, the time when these were written, when the alphabet was first invented, is hundreds of years before the time of Moses and the conventional dating scheme. Mm. And it has nothing, therefore, to do with the Hebrews. But in the revised dating scheme, it lines up perfectly. Most of the inscriptions in Sinai are in the time of the Exodus. And you can actually attribute them to two or three individuals, one predominant individual. The handwriting is the same. The style is the same. And for all intents and purposes, I think they're actually writings of Moses Hmm. carved on the rocks of Sinai. And when you read them with the Hebrew language using this alphabet, they actually make sense. They actually refer to events recorded in the Bible and the book of Exodus. Yeah, so one inscription you argue, there's actually a reference to manna. Talk about that one for a moment. Okay, well, it's uh, it's an inscription that uh, is in mine L at Sarabitel Kadim. And it's one of those inscriptions which is quite short. It's only a couple of sentences. Um, and let me just find it on my computer so I can actually read it to you. Yes, in Hebrew, it goes, Entosh Gandach. That's the first sentence. And that basically translates as, I have uprooted an oppressed garden. Now, in that context, it's quite a flowery sentence, really. But what it basically means is, that the Israelite slaves have been taken out of Egypt, which is referred to in the Bible as a garden in a number of places, and it's an oppressed garden because the slaves were oppressed by the Egyptians. So basically, these are the words of somebody saying, I have uprooted you, the slaves of of, of Israel, out of Egypt, and now we're in the Sinai Desert. And then the next sentence says, Mi la'ab babanach, which basically means, who is for the father in regards to your manna? In other words, he's basically saying, obey the rules that were set by God in the Sinai Peninsula. You know, don't store the manna. It's going to go off if you do that. You have to eat it when you pick it, basically, off the ground. And it's the first time we've seen this word outside the Bible, Hmm. manna. It's written on the rocks of Sinai. So this is basically somebody, and I have to say, I think he's actually Moses himself, who's recorded these two amazing sentences. Basically, I've taken you out of Egypt. I, Moses, have taken you out of Egypt, this garden, but with an oppressed garden because you were slaves. And now we're in, in Sinai. Do as you're told with regard to the laws about manna that God had given us. Now, that is just spectacular to find something like that in the Sinai Peninsula. Another inscription from that area uh, that you highlight in your book relates to a man with a copper furnace by the name of Hobab. Oh, and yes. what, in your opinion, is significant about this inscription? Well, the fact that we've actually got the name Hobab in the inscription. Somebody from the Bible, you know, the the, the son-in-law of Jethro, the Midianite. Uh, Hobab is a Kenite. He's a metalsmith. Um, the Midianites were famous for, you know, smelting metals, especially bronze. And here we have a text that's actually where the smelting works were in Sinai, mm. not very far from this temple of Sarabs del Kadim, where these so-called mosaic inscriptions are found. And this one goes, which translates as, as for the congregation and Hobab, a mighty furnace. So it's actually a statement saying, we have built for Hobab a furnace so that we can make the bronze weapons we need 
when we go to invade the promised land. You know, he's actually there smelting the metals to make weapons and accoutrements for the for the ark in the time of the Sinai wanderings. Now, Hobab, of course, is a is a bit of an obscure character. In some cases, it looks like he might be equated with Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, but you argue yeah. there's probably his brother-in-law. Why do you say that? Well, it's the word Hothan. Hothan can mean brother-in-law or son-in-law. It has both meanings. So it's just a matter of the vowel change. And of course, the early Hebrew didn't have any vowels written in it at all. Jethro seems to be a a very different person to Hobab. But when you read the the two biblical inscriptions, I believe there's one in Numbers and one in Judges about Hobab, uh, it's not easy to see that he's a metal worker. How do you make that connection? Well, Midianites were Kenites. I mean, in the Bible, we see that all the time. And we actually have the word Kenny, which is that's how it's written in Hebrew, actually carved at the Temple of Hathor at Sarabid al-Khadim. We actually have a person called a Kenny. So it's actually part of the thing that the Midianites did. They were specialists in metalworking. Mm. Now, the most interesting inscription that you discuss in your book, in my opinion, is uh, Sinai 361. Oh, yeah. Which your translator renders this way. He who had bound us in captivity was removed. The year was ended, and ended with it were those who strayed towards Balat. Talk about this one. Well, the first thing you have to know is that Balat is the Semitic name of Hathor, the cow goddess, who was the patron deity of Sinai. Mm. And the Egyptians believed that she ruled over Sinai. So basically, the story of the golden calf is all about Hathor. In the Masoretic text, it's a male calf. In the other text, uh, we find out that it's actually a heifer. Josephus, for instance, he mentions that the, the golden calf is a heifer. Hmm. And of course, you have the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, who actually says, I am making these two heifers, these two statues for you, so you can worship the God who brought you out of Egypt. Hmm. And that's the big contention. Some of these Israelites are slipping away from Yahweh, uh, Yah, and, and going back to worshipping the goddess of Sinai in their travels. And that's why they, they make the golden calf, because they're worshipping Hathor, basically. And, and the word Egal, without the vowels, it can actually be female as well as male. So Egala is the word for female uh, cow, and Egal is the male. So in the in the early form of Hebrew, they didn't have the vowel markers. That came much later. So it's got three consonants, basically, mm. Egal. So we see not only a reference in this Sinai inscription to, quote, liberation from slavery and captivity, but also to the frank admission that some of these recently liberated slaves ended up worshipping yeah. this cow deity. That's quite striking, isn't it? Well, it's striking, but I don't think they just became worshippers of Hathor. I think in the slavery period, when they'd been in Egypt for centuries, they would have been probably worshippers of, of Hathor. Yeah. So they slipped back. And the amazing thing is that the story of the golden calf, when Moses comes down the mountain and he finds these these people all sleeping around the, the golden calf because they've been drunk all night and dancing and, and God knows what else, uh, that is exactly the same date, time-wise, as the celebration of the Festival of Drunkenness, which was a festival in Egypt that was celebrated to celebrate the golden goddess Hathor. So it's the same day, it's the very same day that that festival took place in Egypt was the day in which Moses found these people, all drunk lying about, sleeping about, at the bottom of the mountain of God. Yeah, I love that section in your book where you sort of demonstrate the timing of that festival to Hathor, the golden one. Yeah. The golden one. That's kind of striking. Yeah, that's what she was called. Yeah. And she's a cow deity. So we, what you're saying basically is that the scene there described in Exodus 32 basically yeah. amounts to an Israelite celebration of this Egyptian festival in honor of Hathor. 
Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And that is what Jeroboam is referring to when later on he says, well, I'm going to give you two golden calves to worship. He's harking back to the fact that mm -hmm. there were people within the congregation who were still worshippers of the goddess. You point out that a few other inscriptions read as a kind of stern rebuke for those yeah. who did engage in this disgraceful worship of this cow deity. Yes, and this is quite amazing for me. As I said, the turquoise mines are located on a mountain where we have a temple to this goddess Hathor. And what we found was that um, it had been destroyed. The pylon in front of the gateway in front of the temple had been pulled down and all the buildings had been knocked over and destroyed and it had been burnt. There's a thick layer of ash on the surface there. When did that happen? Exactly the time that I've got the exodus uh, hmm. happening in, in Egypt in the at the end of the 13th dynasty, the Middle Bronze Age period, not at the time of Ramesses II. And you have these curses that are written in the Proto-Sinaitic, these inscriptions, which seem to be in the same hand as the one that was in Minel, the Mosaic one, the Moses inscription, which is basically saying that I order you to tear down this building. I order you to never mention the, the name Balat, the, the name, the Semitic name for Hathor. You must never mention her, especially the females that are in the congregation. You do not follow this goddess. Hathor was favoured by females in Egypt because she was the mother goddess. She was the goddess of birth. So your natural thing would be for the Israelite women who had been brought up in Egypt to fall back to worshipping Hathor because that was their custom before they discovered Moses bringing the new god, Yah, to them. You say that some of the proto-Sinaitic inscriptions actually go back a few centuries earlier as yeah. well. Like, uh, for example, in your book, you point out some interesting parallels between the Wadi El Hol inscriptions and the things we read in Genesis about Joseph. Talk about that. Yeah, that's another interesting one. As I said right at the beginning of our conversation, I believe that the invention of this amazing alphabet is by somebody who was a Semite who spoke Hebrew but also was intelligent enough and wise enough to create an alphabet out of Egyptian hieroglyphs. Because, of course, Joseph was a vizier of Egypt. He was a very powerful man. He was the second most important man in the country. Who better to invent this script for his own people, for the, for the Hebrews? So he was a very, very powerful individual. And one of the things he did was he, um, he created this, this department of the people's giving, which is an Egyptian term for people who were corveyed, made into a, a group of people who went out to plant the fields with grain and to harvest them. And they would go around the country, this team of people, and they'd be conscripted to do this work. Now, what we find in the Wadi El Hall is some bitter man who is writing in Proto-Sinaitic, the very first inscriptions we find of this alphabet out there, blaming somebody in fine clothes dressed like a god, and only exhorting us to go and do all this work. Even the free men, even the ones who are not slaves, are sent out to go and do all this work. That's somebody bitching about Joseph. That's exactly what this is. And all these texts fit into the context of the biblical story. Yeah, because there was a time in which, uh, I think Genesis does mention, that he conscripts basically everyone to do the work. Exactly. Yeah. He does that. Even the highborns, even the nomarchs right. who have to give their land to Pharaoh in, in order to get grain because the, the grain because of the famine period. Joseph plans this special team of thousands and thousands of people conscripted from the villages and the cities and even the highborns to work in the fields and they don't like it at all and they're jealous of him for doing all this after all he's he was a slave and he's risen to power when he's got all these splendid clothes he rides around in a chariot etc and they're bitching about him that's exactly what this is doing 
So complaining about our bosses goes back a long time. <laughs> it does indeed. I'm sure it went back to the Stone Age. Now, uh, Douglas Petrovich wrote a book a few years ago where he argued that Hebrew is, in fact, the oldest alphabet, which is an idea that you also share. But when it comes to translating some of the Sinai inscriptions, you too often arrive at very different conclusions and interpretations. Yeah, we do. Others have made the same point that there are, in some cases, many different translations of the Sinai inscription. So in light of that, how can readers of your book be confident that the translations you offer are, in fact, the most accurate? The first and most important thing is that you have to have a rabbi who is versed in these scripts going way, way back. Hmm. And that's what I decided to do. I'm not a Hebrew specialist, so I didn't decide to try and translate them myself. What I did was introduce a rabbi, Michael Shlomo Baron, who is a brilliant scholar. And I simply said to him, look, I've got these inscriptions and I can identify the letters and I want to send them to you. And I want you to say whether or not you feel you can read them. And he wrote back to me. He said, I'm absolutely flabbergasted. I'm amazed. I can read this like it's coming off the page of the Bible. Mm. He said it didn't take me any time to read them. And his inscription translations are his, not mine. Mm -hmm. And he's constantly working on new ones. And he's finding new translations. The, the weakness in, in Doug's uh, translations is that he tries to change the letters to mean different letters. Mm. And he's on very dubious grounds when he does that. Uh, we've got well-established understanding of how these signs translate into Hebrew letters and also to the English alphabet. So it's, it's very strange that he has to pick these obscure ideas of what the translations are for instance one he talks about we've found the name moses in the inscriptions well moses in hebrew is just two letters m and s so that could be a lot of things <laughs> yeah my my and sheen yeah. uh, so it could be and in fact it's not it's nimash is the word it's a three-letter word and so he reads it as moses when the word is actually nimash hmm. so uh you know there's the issues when i feel that uh we, i would disagree with him although i do not disagree with him about the fact that this is the original hebrew language that we're reading yeah now, you also have a chapter in which you discuss that strange event described in Joshua 10 about the day the sun stood still. Uh, you have a really interesting take on this passage. Talk about that. Well, okay. The, the first thing is, again, remember that I'm not a specialist in the Semitic language groups, but um, there are scholars who are, and I often rely on the work of other people. Mm -hmm. I must say that, you know, I don't invent these things out of thin air i get them from specialists in, in language now in the east semitic languages of mesopotamia as opposed to the northwest semitic languages of, of israel you have terms uh, for eclipses you have different expressions and these are the ones that are actually used in the story of joshua and the long day they're the same words they're essentially astronomical terms so you know they explain things like the word that the sun is adjacent to or um, behind the moon, which we would call an eclipse at midday and things like that. And that's what's described in the actual story of the, the long day. So what they're referring to is this day that lasted two days. It basically means that the sun disappeared and came back out again. In other words, it's as if the sun had been born twice, mm. which is what we refer to as two days. You also point out that an ancient writer before the time of Christ wrote about this event, saying that it was through Joshua that, quote, the sun stood for one day, but which became like two, which basically matches yes, your interpretation. Exactly. In other words, when the, when they see the sun darkened, the day is over. And when they see the sun come back out again, the day is reborn. Mm. So you have two days uh, over the pace of one day, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So have we been able to verify around that time, according to your chronology, that there was such an eclipse? 
yeah, in exactly the right date. The biblical date for the uh, Exodus is 1450-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have 1446 is where we can accurately place the Exodus date. So if we're going to take 40 years for the period of time, the wanderings in the desert, we come down to 1406, and that is exactly when we have this, through computer calculations, we can actually see it. You can use your computer programs to actually see this eclipse over Gibeon, which lasts a full day in 1406 BC. So it fits exactly. Hmm. It appears that the solar eclipse was almost all day long. It started quite early in the morning, and it continued until sunset. It's one of the most extraordinary eclipses that we've ever had on record, that it lasted the entire day. Well, folks, you've been listening to part one of my conversation with Egyptologist David Roll, and be sure to join me again next time as I air the second part of this fascinating discussion. In part two, I asked Dr. Roll to comment on the lead curse tablet, which was recently discovered on Mount Ebal, and which is said to contain proto-synatic inscriptions dating to the time of Joshua. And I also took some time to ask Dr. Roll a few questions about the history of the New Testament as well. Folks, please remember that The Humble Skeptic is a listener-supported podcast. You can support this show by upgrading to a paid subscription via Substack or by putting a little something in the tip jar. Also, if you'd like your gift to be tax-deductible, that option is now available, and you can find information about this and other giving options in the show notes. Thanks so much, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time on the Humble Skeptic Podcast as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. academics are not particularly happy with this theory because it turns so much upside down. I don't blame people for being hostile. What I hope is that the hostility is directed towards me with solid arguments. Now, if I'm proved wrong at the end of the day, that's not a real problem for me. It means that we've gone through the exercise of exploring the issue, and that's what matters, the fact we've discussed the issues and debated them.